Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in American Studies. I'm Matthew Rafferty, and I have with me today historian and media scholar Kathleen A. Feely. Professor Feely is an associate professor of history at the University of Redlands in Redlands, California, and the co-editor, along with Jennifer Frost, of When Private Talk Goes Public, Gossip in American History, a new collection just out in late 2014 on Paul Grave Macmillan. Hello, Professor Feely. Hello, thanks for having me. Uh, I should also say this interview is a particular pleasure for me because Professor Feely is also a colleague uh, in the hist- a colleague of mine in the history department at Redlands. Um, so this is sort of extra fun. Um, when Private Talk Goes Public uh, explores through a series of 12 essays the important role gossip has played uh, in many forms throughout American history. In a compilation that spans five centuries of gossip's history, a series of scholars have examined gossip uh, in many facets of American life uh, within, we see go- the role of gossip in witchcraft panics, gossip's use in espionage and politics, uh, the rise of a powerful gossip press, and even the changing meanings of gossip and fame uh, with the rise of the Internet and new media. Uh, perhaps most importantly, the volume also serves as a call to other scholars to see the study of gossip as a newly emerging but important field of inquiry. Uh, to start, uh, could you uh, tell us a little bit about how you came to this project? Um, what what's the history of your interest in the history of gossip? Um, that's interesting. I mean, I guess it stretches all the way back to um, my grandmother's kitchen table after church on Sunday um, in upstate New York. Right, we would, uh, you know, she would buy the gossip periodicals of the day, which at that point were Star Magazine. They were print. It was Star Magazine and. National Enquirer. We didn't descend to the World Weekly News. Um, it was strictly this uh, kind of celebrity stuff. So it was sort of, you know, this kind of sort of childhood reading interest, right, which extended into um, my uh, graduate school career when my advisor, you know, asked me, you know, uh, when I was struggling uh, around a kind of dissertation topic to look into the work of Luella Parsons, who was uh, William Randolph Hearst's uh, Sort of gossipist in chief, um, which led to the dissertation, which um, which led to this project. When I started working on gossip, and it was a long time ago at this point, um, there there are more people working on it now, obviously, as the collection indicates. Um, but uh, uh, Jennifer Frost, who's my co-editor, who's at the University of Auckland, um, was someone I identified early on as another U.S. history scholar who was working in gossip, and for years we talked about putting a collection together, and now well, we have. Um, one of the things I found really kind of striking and exciting about the, the collection is um, how widely the contributors range, both um, in terms of time really across the entire sweep of American history, but also there are historians, legal scholars, scholars of gender, of journalism, of film and new media. Was that part of the goal from the beginning was to show kind of how gossip can be looked at in all of these with all of these lenses, or is that just sort of the state of that field right now? Um, I would say both. I think 
for Jennifer and I, um, and, you know, we, we sort of put out the call on HNET. We reached out to scholars we knew who were working in a range of disciplines um, on gossip. We reached out to colleagues and friends and sort of put the call out um, really widely. Um, and so I always knew it would be a, a really kind of interdisciplinary collection. And it was, and the, the scope, the range of it um, in terms of, in terms of the time frame, the, 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 the idea that we could go from the colonial period really up to the present moment um, was what we had in mind, and we're lucky to sort of find and or beg a little bit, right, to get contributors who could, um, who could give us that scope. That's one of the things we really wanted to do, to not simply have it focused on the modern period and on mass media gossip, which is unquestionably important, right? But we also wanted to, to be sure to kind of expand, but we wanted to be able to expand the scope beyond that, to think about it more broadly. And it uh, worked. That kind of brings me to, to you know, maybe the, the biggest question or the most central question, and, and quite possibly the trickiest, is what is gossip? Right. Um, and, and how have you defined it uh, and what can the study of gossip tell us? Right? You have, you know, across these essays, there are so many different iterations of gossip. Um, what what is the the through line um, that that both sort of in terms of how gossip is defined and that makes it something that can be studied across time and in in the way you're seeking to do here? Um, good question. I would say ultimately um, we are defining it really broadly, and we may be criticized for that, but um, the way in which we're defining it is information. It's more often about other people and things, but it's sometimes also about the self, right? People will gossip about themselves for lots of different kinds of reasons. It's information that can be positive or negative. It might be accurate. It might not be. And it's the key is, right, the, the many ways in which it can be distributed via face-to-face -face talk, whether it's in the boardroom, the bedroom, the backyard, churchyards, courtrooms, embassies, whether it's via print culture or whether it's via the modern mass media. And the in-person exchanges that predominated in the colonial period, those persist even as mass media platforms have obviously proliferated over the last century. And the mass media um, dissemination has highlighted the central function of gossip as a promotional tool in a market exchange, right? Selling a media product, securing a job, defining a, a brand so that our, the modern gossip purveyors, they're the people, um, they're the people the in or, or the institutions, the structures that people think of first when they hear gossip. Um, it's, it's just not the only way that it functions. Um, but how does gossip um, sort of – how, as a historian, do you look at the way power is wielded, sort of social power or, or sort of communal power is wielded through gossip? Um, so gossip can do lots of different things. People tend to think of it only in the negative, right, that it's about mm -hmm. excluding people, that it's about undermining community. In truth, gossip can right, it, it, it can operate it, – the work that it does operates in so many different kinds of ways. It can provide personal enlightenment and pleasure. It can also – uh, inflict pain. It can serve as a tool for the powerful, the disenfranchised, and everyone in between. It can celebrate, it can condemn, it can include or it can exclude, and it can build or undermine community. And of course, it can promote all manner of things in a sort of contemporary context, right? That's a sort of central way gossip, um, 
gossip operates. And, and people tend to, when they think of sort of mass media gossip, they think of the salacious, of, of the reveal of a divorce or an affair or some such. But the reality is if you, if you look at the bulk of, of sort of mass media gossip across multiple platforms, whether in print, whether online, generally it's pretty mundane and it's often serving a promotional function that gee, there's some gossip about so-and-so because they're promoting their new book, they're promoting their new film, and often the gossip is absolutely innocuous. But it's really, it's business news, actually, more so than uh, what we would sort of think about as, as, as gossip in a sort of negative and salacious kind of way. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of the, the 20th century, the machinery of the gossip business. Is that... Mm-hmm. Um, yes. I was really struck yeah. by... Um, in a number of the early ones, the, the enormous power of gossip. I mean, I think that to, to a casual observer, one of the things that's surprising about a lot of these essays is, you know, just how, you know, those who wield gossip, those who have the, the cultural space to, you know, support or decry their, you know, the other members of the community through gossip Right. It's it's not a minor thing. It's you know, it it leads to, you know, who was elected, who was arrested, who is, you know, hanged for witchcraft is is there's, you know, those that can control gossip, you know, even casual oral networks can wield enormous social and cultural power. Absolutely. And it's, it's really gendered. Looking in that um, early period, historian Christine Eisel, right, is looking at church and community politics in colonial Virginia in the uh, 1650s and looks at a failed bid by a group of women to use gossip to sort of participate in the political and, and sort of religious order from which they're largely excluded. Um, uh, it, it's a failed bid, but it speaks to... Uh, Right, the power of gossip and the way in which um, they really they have to be shut down. Mary Beth Norton, you know, we were delighted, right? In many ways, she's um, in some ways uh, the sort of dean of the study of gossip that she is was such an important scholar. I mean, in influencing me um, uh, in, in taking gossip seriously. So it was, um, you know, uh, such a uh, uh, so important, right, to to, uh, to have that essay from her looking at the way gossip works um, in the so-called Salem Witchcraft Crisis of 1692 to understand the way in which gossip is the tool um, is an important tool both in the court in 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 the courtyards and the churchyards to spread gossip amongst strangers, right, so that those accusations spread that someone who doesn't know so and so is able to to kind of lodge an accusation that actually um, gossip has uh, played right uh, it's such an important role there right, as well. So that those face-to-face exchanges, particularly in the colonial period, are so important. So it's not merely that, you know, gossiping happens to be the medium that those accusations get spread. Um, that fact is really important to understand what happened, that these are women... Uh, and men, but especially women, kind of pushing these kinds of claims through um, through these kind of back channels of of, of oral conversation, um, you know, long Absolutely. before it ends up in the court. And I think yeah. um, a number of the essays really do some interesting things with 
um, the way gossip is gendered, um, and and specifically, I'm thinking of um, the way it either right it's seen as less important or less inflammatory because it's merely you know quote unquote women talking, exactly. uh, but by the same token, um, it's really a place um, where women um, are able to wield authority that they can't have. I think in the the first essay, um, uh, she talks about them having a lack of formal authority, but through these informal channels, these women can wield enormous power. Absolutely. And that actually, um, it it might be a good idea to take a step back and just talk for a minute about actually the origins of the word gossip itself, and that it originates around the 12th century in Old English as a noun, the noun godsib, meaning a godparent at christening, um, and the word then kind of evolves, taking on a broader, more secular meaning of a close friend. And it's not until the, the 1600s that this new, this sort of gender-specific definition that, that still lingers to some extent, I think, um, had emerged, right? A gossip is a woman assisting at childbirth. And this transformation in meaning is obviously driven by the rise of separate spheres, right? As in the identification of the public political sphere with men and the private domestic sphere there with women, at least in Anglo-American society. And from there, obviously, right, women assisting at childbirth have access to all kinds of information, including, right, uh, whether it's true or not, right, the information about who's the baby daddy, right? And there you have, right, the, the beginnings of this uh, this identification of gossip as an activity, right, as, as a kind of gendered activity, and therefore the kind of uh, both less important but also more dangerous kind of activity, right? This, this sort of lingering association of gossip as uh, an activity engaged in exclusively by women, and hopefully that's one of the things that the collection, right, finally disavows, right? This, this notion um, that it's uh, that it is uh, only an activity engaged in uh, by women. It certainly can give women power when they don't have power, right, as, as a disempowered group, uh, certainly. But uh, we see how it operates uh, in the diplomatic press corps in the 20th century, right, the power of, of gossip uh, to gather information, to undermine jobs, to do all kinds of things uh, in the foreign service, in a workplace. Um, and that that kind of brings me back to this question of um as as gossip's meaning expands out, um, how do you keep you know how do we as as scholars keep something coherent that we're looking at? Right? Is there you know w- yeah. what's the sort of through line from these kind of um, local oral networks through the kind of um, you know, reports back and forth in the, in the foreign service in, and then into the kind of machinery of celebrity gossip and beyond. Um, I think, um, I guess I'm always, I, I always remain um, sort of committed to the broader definition. It's certainly in the sort of literature around gossip, right? That there are um, debates over, is it gossip? Is it rumor? Right. Sort of, uh, right, which is which, and how do we understand them? Um, I, I think it's more useful, particularly it, it's sort of in a moment, right, it, um, where, um, for example, actually at the uh, most recent um, AHA, the American 
Historical Association meeting, um, Lynn Hunt shared a panel on gossip, which I was really excited to see and then couldn't actually get to. Um, so the, we're, we're seeing more scholars sort of, uh, right, in history and beyond, um, taking on gossip, both as a primary source to use in their work, as well as, right, a way of, of thinking about and sort of um, organizing their work. Uh I guess there's always the danger if the definition is too broad does it sort of lose its meaning. I would say within the realm of the mass media gossip, um, that in many ways that's an easy one, right? That that in in that realm right now, that which is gossip is defined as gossip. Again, as, as I had indicated earlier, a lot of a lot of that gossip is really it's a promotional tool, and I think in that at least sort of subset of the world of gossip. That's the way it needs to be understood, right? It's a promotional tool, and that's how it operates. Uh, the, the face-to-face exchanges um, are, 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 I guess, a different animal, so to speak, right? And they, right, that there are different kinds of gossip, right? There is not one, one version that exists. Um, but there does seem to be, I mean, in, in reading through it, there does seem to be, at least to, to my eye, kind of a through line about the way um, kind of information is passed and, and the, you, you talk a little bit in the introduction about um, narrativity, that there seems to be something kind of almost inherently, um, you know, the part of the art of gossip is in the storytelling, right? Part of what makes the later mass media gossip interesting is that it's, yeah. you know, exciting stories about famous people. Um, but even in the, the earlier, um, oral networks or, you know, the earlier written networks, um, that are private, that aren't, you know, published for the world, um, the kind of the skill of the gossip in, in framing or crafting this and making this, uh, excitement or the make, making this exciting is a big part of how it operates. I think one of the other things uh, you you talked about in the introduction is is that it's really important to think about it across all of these as you know as among other things a guilty pleasure like enormous power is wielded and this is about defining social circles and who's in and who's out um, and you know moral censure uh, in certain cases but it's also right gossip is fun. Um, and you're right, and it, it is about building a story, right? A story that uh, that is compelling. Uh, whether the story is building a community, kicking someone out of that community, um, that 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 that's part of its sort of enduring power and interest. Um, uh, absolutely, the narrativity piece is is, is important. Um, whether it's operating in the press, whether we're looking at, uh, you know, I think a good ex- example is Eric Ball's essay looking at the free black press um, in the antebellum period and looking at the way in which uh, gossip is both uh, used to sell the papers, to tell great stories, right, and can even simultaneously in the same article be used uh to warn again, to warn about the dangers of gossip and the way in which this would operate against, right, the sort of politics of respectability um, that are emerging, right, for um, free African Americans um, in this period. So you see there an example of the the power of the the, the narrativity and the power of the story, right? I'm going to tell you this 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 tale, uh, 
about the dangers of gossip, right? Which will draw you in, which will make you buy my paper. And at the end of the story, at the end of the article, I'm going to tell you, but don't do that. It's very bad. Not good for you. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd also like to, to talk more about the 20th century stuff and, and kind of the um, the machinery of, you know, the rise of the gossip business. Um, and there are a number of pieces that, that speak to that in different ways uh, within the collection. Um, but sort of, you can talk a little bit about how that happens and how does it develop and, and, and you know, where does it draw its, its power from um, both, you know, certainly in, in kind of the heyday in Hollywood to, to create and to destroy um, yes, the, the, certainly, uh, the notion of, of the gossip, the gossip columnist, right, uh, predates Hollywood. You've got Benjamin Franklin, right, in his first, right, some of his first, um, sort of political writings and in his early sort of newspaper career, which was his first career in many ways, right, is, uh, the, using the persona of silence to do the, uh, uh, the Boston gossip, um, as, as right as a way of sort of performing on the political stage, um, Nancy Eisenberg writes about uh, Anne Royal, right as a newspaper editor in the 19th century, again using gossip, right in in Washington, right as a, as, a, as an incredibly sort of powerful tool. It makes her a really powerful player on the political scene in the 20th century. Um, it, it's Hollywood, it's the film industry that figures out um, how to really sort of harness the power of gossip for promotional purposes. That Hollywood, um, the, the, the classical Hollywood studio system, when I say Hollywood, I'm talking about the classical Hollywood studio system, right, which exists from, you know, roughly something like 1925, um, let's say, to about 1960. Um, they uh, sort of perfect... Um, uh, the use of gossip is a promotional tour, tool that it sort of lures people in, but there are rules, at least in that mid-century period, right? There are all kinds of things you actually don't talk about. Um, and the, the, the two women who uh, become the sort of head of uh, the Hollywood press corps in this period, um, Luella Parsons and Hedda Hopper, um, that here you have right also a place where gender is key at a time when women are losing power right um, behind the scenes in Hollywood the persona of the gossipist so to speak allows um, the two leaders of the Hollywood press corps as well as the significant numbers of women who continue to work in that press corps and to be mentored actually also by Parsons and later Hopper uh, uh, to maintain employment, to maintain power, that it becomes this incredibly powerful tool. But again, there are all kinds of things um, that don't get talked about. Questions of sexuality, right, are off the table. You can get punished for in, in other ways, right, for transgressing all kinds of um, norms and boundaries um, in this period. But there are, right, some things that are, are not talked about. Um, but I would say most importantly, what they do is figure out how to take really innocuous information um, and sell it as gossip, uh, that they take so much of their business tool and package it in, uh, in the form of a gossip column or later a gossip broadcast um, that lots of under other industries would, would do well and to, to figure out how to package just 
really sort of innocuous information about who's been cast in a film, what project maybe is getting made, maybe isn't getting made, um, and and selling it. But it's that it's it is an important piece of the sort of story of the rise of Hollywood um, as a, a tool not just to sell the industry, but also to sort of sell the American way of life in an American empire in the mid 20th century. That in the, you know the 20th century is the American century. The story of Hollywood and gossip, I think, is an important piece of that story. Um, so it's not just kind of the studios packaging information as a as a kind of using gossip as a as a wing of their um, you know, publicity department or their advertising department. Um, but it also comes to be, um, you know, women like, like Hopper um, and Parsons are, are kind of almost framing a certain definition of Americanness Absolutely. through kind of what they approve of and what they uh, censure and what they, um, you know, these, these, celebrities they're writing about almost become um kind of test cases or or sample cases for the wider public. Absolutely. Right. They become archetypes, right, in many ways of right the good girl, the bad girl, um, the uh, you know, America's sweetheart, right? America's leading man, right? All of these these sorts of categories. Um, become also right, larger sort of representations of, of what it means to be an American, uh, in, in at, particularly at mid-century, right? As America emerges first as a world power and then as one of two superpowers, uh, that they uh, will play a central role. And, I, and, and sometimes people kind of don't always fully understand um, when they hear the studio system. There's just this this. People, I think, often get this idea that everyone was an employee of the studio system. Luella Parsons was an employee of William Randolph Hearst, right? But she was a journalist, um, first and foremost, right? Though the persona of gossip columnist has, has obscured that. And she willfully obscured that, right? That, that, it, that it was a way of those of keeping her power by using the persona of a gossip columnist to say, ah, shucks, right? I'm, you know, I'm just a kind of... I'm a silly little girl who doesn't know how to spell, right? But she she did this kind of performance, was a, which was a way of both maintaining and hiding, right, the, the incredible power um, that she held. So that she's not an employee of the studio system, that she's an employee, right, of the vast Hearst media empire, which is absolutely, right, separate and apart from... The, they work in conjunction, certainly. Um, mm -hmm. But that... Uh, and Hopper, right, when she sort of later in life um, becomes um, a journalist and a gossip columnist herself, right, is, right, she's not an, empl an employee of the studio system. So while there was certainly all kinds of sort of synchronicity and deal cut and all manner of things, there was also some independence, right? It's a, it's a difficult balancing act as it is with any journalist, right? How are, how, how are you, how do you maintain some independence but maintain your access, right? And the studios obviously heavily police that, um, 
there's a kind of tension there um, that uh, uh, one of our authors um, right looks at um, Helen Ferguson, who's a Hollywood publicist. And again, she's an independent publicist. She's not a publicist working for the studio system. And she's also working for and with some really powerful stars, and particularly female stars like Loretta Young and Barbara Stanwyck. So that there's a kind of tension there that it's not simply just doing what the studio wants, right? So that there is right, possibilities um, to do all kinds of interesting things, right? And in, and in some ways, when you, right, you have these sort of powerful uh, female professionals, um, many of whom are, really, are, are also really mindful of that. They do things like bands together and professional associations. They have a sense of, none of them that I study or that I've mentioned would ever call themselves a feminist. They would never use that kind of language to describe themselves, but nonetheless, they're banding together in professional associations and they're mindful of being outliers in an industry that is really male dominated. And so are doing right, really interesting work, particularly around uh, gender norms and ideals. Sometimes they're absolutely maintaining the status quo in other places, right? There's, Right, since the burst of content. Hmm. I mean, there's a really, I think, um, interesting triangle that gets set up between kind of the subject of the gossip, in this case, the star, and the studio that has an interest in disseminating out a certain amount of information and certain mm-hmm. kinds of information, and then also the, um, you know, the gossip columnist who's working for a for a different entity, right? Every piece of that is hoping for one version, you know, especially the first two are hoping for one version of the story, right? The star wants, you know, their star to rise. They want good stories. The studio may want that or may not, depending on what they want to promote, you know, what the studio wants to promote, right? The gossip columnist over at the newspaper, on the other hand, is, um, you know, doesn't want to, you know, I guess what I'm saying is it, it's interesting the way that the studio and the gossip colonists can be powerful, powerful allies, but there is that tension that you were talking about, right? They could also be, you know, there's sort of some mutual assured destruction there, right? That, yeah. that if the gossip columnist blows up the wrong celebrity or, you know, goes with certain stories, that's going to harm their access. Um, but might sell a lot of papers in the short term. And the studio also has to keep, you know, keep the gossip colonist fed and happy, you know, fed with information um, or they lose this ability to control the message. And I do think it's really striking that, that there are these, you know, women in these very powerful roles that can really kind of make or break careers and to some extent make or break studios, right? Even as the film industry is increasingly, run by guys, you know, um, and the newspaper industry is certainly run by men at this, you know, it's very much a boys club, you know, you, you have these women that, that very self-consciously, as you said, band together to, um, to wield this power while at the same time, um, saying, well, this is frivolous. This is, you know, I'm just collecting stories about stars. It's not, not a big deal. Yeah, it's soft news. Um, uh, that, uh, and of course, all of that changes um, by the sort of late 50s, early 60s. You have the Paramount decision um, that leads to the so-called collapse of the studio system. Uh, so that um, stars 
right, who once, right, didn't have their own publicists, they didn't have their own press agents, those people generally were studio employees, they can now hire, right, the, the, in all kinds of ways, right, it changes the dynamic. Um, and it's actually a man, it's Ed Sullivan, who is also, right, he began his career as a gossip columnist. He was always the second-rate Walter Winchell until uh, he created the Ed Sullivan Show, that he is the gossip columnist who is really able to figure out how to take the gossip columnist from print um, to television. And, of course, his role becomes, right, you know, he's the guy, he's the host, right, and the stars come on his show to really tell their own stories, right, that they're now free from the sort of control of the food studios, so to speak, and they can craft their own stories. And they use um, the Ed Sullivan show as, as sort of one of their first and best uh, television platforms to start to do that work in a different kind of way. So he really translates it to television. Um, and then um, Annie Peterson talks about sort of what happens um, in the uh, sort of, you know, 70s, 80s, right, which which helps to kind of bring us into the present moment. You have the sort of proliferation of, you have sort of the end of the gossip columnist, right, the sort of the star, right? Every now and again, someone like a Perez Hilton, um, will kind of pop up and, and and be this kind of sort of gossip talking head. Joan Rivers is another good example. She actually uses the persona, right, with her, you know, can we talk, the persona of the female gossip really, like, wildly successfully, right? She has this very up-and-down career, obviously, um, but uh, right at the end of the day, right, that, uh, you know, she left behind a multi-million dollar estate and, and really vast cultural influence, right, that that becomes increasingly clear, um, in you know, through the wake of her, you know, of her, uh, of, of her recent death, uh, we see the way she used that persona really effectively. Though, of course, it created problems for her. There were periods when her career was just destroyed, right? Johnny Carson wouldn't have turned on a, on a male co-host the way he turned on Joan Rivers when she dared to get her own show, right? He banned her from The Tonight Show. Uh, Jay Leno and Conan O'Brien and Jay Leno again, right? The, the band only lifted when uh, Jimmy's, is it Jimmy Fallon? Which Jimmy took over? They're Jimmy, I guess it's Jimmy Fallon. <laughs> right? There are a lot of them. Um, he sort of famously brought her back on, right? And that was this, this sort of huge moment because she got kicked out of the boys' club, right? But they let her in and she betrayed them, right? And so they, that, uh, you know, that hurt her career. But obviously, she ended up using the fashion police at the sort of, you know, in the, the, in the final phase of her career, which is, right, a, a, a sort of, right, another kind of uh, version, right, an elaboration of uh, this sort of role of the, of the gossip columnist. Now we're gossiping about fashion, right, that that becomes this platform to do all, all kinds of things and become... In the last 10 to 20 years, it's changed the the, the, the way uh, the award show operates. It's, it's changed the way the industry operates, right? This, the, it's, it's, it's an expression of a larger shift that's the, happening. It's not the, the rise only of, engine. The rise of who are you wearing? Yes, right. The way in which you require a stylist um, that you must have to, you know, access to designers that just sort of showing up and being Cher and wearing Bob Mackie. There's still some, you know, every, there, there's still some people, right? Helena Bonham Carter would be an example, right? That she's someone who deliberately does the anti-fashion thing because it, it also gets you a little bit of press, right? If you're not 
perfectly quaffed, right, and, and discussing, right, all of the sort of name brand designers and people that you're wearing. That's um, actually becoming a way to distinguish yourself. So it seems that 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 what what you're laying out and what these uh, essays lay out are, are kind of several pivots in the 20th century. One is is the kind of rise of this um, the the powerful columnist in the newspaper, and then in the in this in the late 60s and the 70s and into the 80s, kind of the rise of freestanding gossip publications and freestanding gossip media. Um, and is that? Is that a sort of expansion of the power of gossip or is that a diffusion of its, right? So it's fewer powerful voices, but now there's, you know, a whole staff at People Magazine or the National Enquirer. And there are, you know, far greater gradations, right? And when you were talking about um, your own interest uh, starting in uh, – you know, at the kitchen table after church, right? There's, well, I'll read, you know, we, this family reads these publications, but not the weekly world news. You know, is there a kind of self-selection or is there, you know, as, as the kind of cornucopia of, uh, of gossip publications uh, expand in that era, um, does the kind of gossip, the different meanings um, you can get from it, the different kind of uh, cultural messages, is that, is it less uniform? Is it more? Um... I think I think it's a piece. I think that shift in the seventies and eighties, the sort of the rise of the publications, um, and, and notably People, right? That Time Inc. comes up with, right? They had the People section in Time Magazine, and that becomes the inspiration for an entire magazine, right? Really focused on. Um, celebrities across a range, right? Not just film. In fact, in the beginning, right in the in, in sort of the seventies when it's created, it's 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 much less about film. Actually, it's focused on television. It's focused on sport. It's focusing much more broadly on the world of of, of entertainment. And you you see uh, that, it, that it's a piece of of what we people would call a kind of shift to infotainment and this notion of sort of gossip as news across a range of of media platforms um, and journalistic products, right? That, right? That this is a kind of shift. It's a larger shift in an understanding of, of what it means to be a public person and to be a celebrated person in the 20th century, um, certainly. And then, actually, our, our final essay, our sort of um, uh, the essay we knew we needed, and and so I had to, you know, plead a little bit. But actually, uh, one of our colleagues at Redlands, um, Tim Sieber. Right, produced just a great essay talking about the digital revolution and the uh, uh, right the sort of digital platform that we really we couldn't do we couldn't have done the collection it would it would have felt incomplete without talking a little bit about the present moment and thinking about what's old and what's new about gossip online um, and Tim uh, right sort of demonstrates the way in which um, the internet. Um, through uh, sort of YouTube channels, right, the ways in which uh, the digital revolution really frees individuals in many ways to operate outside of so many um, more traditional kind of media platforms, right, that you have a couple that basically, right, starts, uh, you know, tied to the sort of reality television phenomenon, they start filming themselves, right, and have become millionaires, right, as a result of, uh, there's sort of YouTube series, which is um, tracking um, sort of their life and their story. So that so this is this interesting um, new development, right? That 
one of the most sort of significant things is you've got a new platform on which, right, to sort of generate discussion about, in this case, right, they're, gener- they're, they're generating discussions about the self um, into the trippies and telling their story. But I guess I would say it's the self in quotes, right, that there's, of course, all of these complicated um, conversations around sort of the notion of reality television and the, the, the performance of the self. Yeah, I mean, I think I think one of the the things that really struck me about that essay is is you we've gotten to this moment. Two things really. One is this kind of increasing democratization of the ability to gossip. In some ways, um, we're headed back um, to the stuff you see in the colonial era, where it is um, individual people can wield power through gossip. Um, it's just now there's that that can reach, you know, you know, the right picture connected to the right words becomes the right meme and it becomes, you know, kind of broadcast to the world in, in new ways. So kind of the democratization of, you know, now everyone is the gossip columnist again. Um, exactly. But the other thing is that you can have this sort of you can have gossip um without fame or that the fame comes from being gossiped about, right? The, the trippies, this, this family that Tim's talking about in this essay, they're not famous at the start of this. This is what makes their fame, right? They just sort of start gossiping about themselves, if you will, or kind of performing their themselves. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 the husband, right. Is he's in, he's in a band, right? So he's mm-hmm. got a sort of a nominal, very kind of local, sort of fame and a kind of interest in it. But no, you're absolutely right that this, that, you know, their story is not unlike, um, it's also, but it is a kind of, it is a sort of this modern, right, if we're talking about sort of 20th and 21st century America, that in, in the early 20th century, right, you have people wringing their hands over, you know, Ava Tangway, who is a, you know, sort of vaudeville, right, phenomenon, right, she's one of the biggest stars in Hollywood, uh, excuse me, in, She's one of the biggest stars in Bodville. Um, you know, who's, who's sort of famous for doing vaguely suggestive dancing, and she's not a very good dancer, and she can't really sing, and she's not a comedian, and she's not really a performer, that she's one of these people um, who becomes famous for being famous, right? That there's this concern that there's a sort of, right, that uh, where is the character, where is the talent, right, This in this sort of shift, um, uh you know, that scholars like Warren Sussman have talked about this shift into the 20th century uh, from character to personality, uh, um, from being acclaimed to being famous, right? Sort of famous for being famous. That people now wring their hands over Kim Kardashian would be a good example, or all of the Kardashians, right? Jenners, all of them, right? That there's this uh, sort of sense of, right, where does the fame come from, right? Does the fame simply come from from being promoted, from being publicized, that it's part of the conundrum of, of uh, the world of mass culture and entertainment and a media that explodes really in the early 20th century. And we're still dealing with the fallout a century later. Um, and, and the implications of, of sort of new ways to, to spread all of that stuff. It's so much, in some ways, there's so many more tools at your disposal if you want to be famous just for being famous. Yes. Um, in, in all sorts of ways. And I think, um, 
that's that's one of the things that, that for me at least binds the binds the collection together really nicely is right by the end you're talking about you know you're talking about kind of we were talking about uh, Joan Rivers and and the creation of fashion as you know got fa- uh, fashion gossip and you know the first essay is about kind of what's being worn and what's being concealed and um you know the sort of creation of merkins and wigs for uh, women to hide, um, venereal disease and things like that, that there's a kind of, right. One of the key things that's gossiped about throughout is, is, is your self-performance, including clothing and other things. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So that I, right. Again, these, these, these questions keep arising, right. Building community, undermining community, right. Is the information accurate? Is the information not accurate? Is it about the self, right? Is it positive? Is it negative? That these, uh, uh, that the, the, the sort of world of the internet, right, does, does generate a kind of intimacy that, that pot, right, that gets lost in the sort of, uh, print culture, the media explosion of the 20th century. So in some ways in the early 21st century, we're sort of circling back uh, to a a version of a mediated version, right, of of, of those face-to-face exchanges. And I think that's a a good place to kind of close the conversation about the book. But I want to ask uh, before we go, what's next? What are you working on? Is it still Uh, in the field of gossip and... Um, well, I'm actually, I'm staying there, um, the monograph on uh, really looking at the rise of the Hollywood press corps um, in the mid-20th century uh, is, um, is, is, is the next project. Um, really look, trying to understand uh, a press corps that doesn't exist in 1925 is by 1950 the second largest in the nation. It's second only to um, the press corps covering. Uh, the sort of national press scene in both Washington and New York. Um, so understanding where it comes from, how it comes from, obviously looking um, at, uh, at Parsons in particular, because she really is the leader, and, and Hopper shows up quite a bit late, later. But looking beyond those leaders to really, to, to understanding the many women who work in that press corps, as well as the men, understanding um what does it mean to be a male gossip columnist, for example? So really looking at those those questions of um, gender from both sides, right? The sort of uh, challenges to one's masculinity, for example, uh, uh, as a as a that one poses um, as a as a male gossip columnist. Um, cool. That sounds um, very exciting. Um, I want to. Uh, uh, thank you again, Kathleen Feely. And again, the book is When Private Talk Goes Public, Gossip in American History uh, on Paul Grave Macmillan. Thank you very much for your time and and for sharing your the story of this book and gossip. Great. Thank you for having me. 